Hi, welcome to this episode of A Cup of EJ, the podcast where you can learn a bit about the environmental justice movement in the same time it takes to drink a cup of coffee. If you tuned into the last episode, we talked about the science behind climate change in the Arctic and the interconnectedness of climate. This week, we're diving more into the climate science aspect with our guest, Dr. Lasha. Dr. Lasha, do you want to introduce yourself a bit? Sure. So um, my name is Megan Latchall, and I um, work at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health um, in their Department of Environmental Health and Engineering, um, which basically looks at um, how the environment impacts human health. And my research um, and work really centers around um, environmental justice and health equity. And I um, often tend uh, to look at everything through that lens, whether it's climate or pollution or anything else. I'm excited to be here with you today. Sweet, we're excited to have you. And always, I'm your host, Miriam Anthony, and this podcast is brought to you by the Environmental Justice Coalition. Our kind of general idea for this segment of the podcast was to shine a light on the relationship not only between the science and public health, but also how people perceive these two in conjunction. I know that's changed a lot, especially with the pandemic and over the past few years. So, Dr. Ladshaw, from your perspective, how do people tend to view public health? Well, uh, you know, uh, I would say before the pandemic, not a lot of people really understood what public health was all about. I think most people didn't even know what the word epidemiology meant. And um, we used to bemoan that fact. And we, you know, we used to have really strong support for public health, um, pretty much everybody. Uh, CDC used to be one of the most trusted institutions in the U.S. Um, and, you know, I think now um, that we've had COVID, people really do understand public health, like my mom does now a little bit more. But it's also become sort of like polarized uh, due to how political I feel COVID-19 became over time. That makes sense. I've, I think I've noticed that too as well. So there is like a very obvious kind of political split nowadays when you think about it. It's kind of especially apparent in online environmental justice spaces just because from my perspective, a lot of the people in the movement tend to lean more liberal than conservative. And I kind of actually did want to discuss that with you a bit of background research that I've done, like reading at least, is that the political divide tends to become, well, tends to be formed by difference instead of values. Is that something that professionals in your field have to navigate around? And if so, how do they approach it? Yeah, you know, this is something that I've thought about a lot. Um, I think people who work in public health have a certain set of values. You know, we're very committed to the good of society. You know, medicine tends to focus on the health of an individual, whereas public health focuses on the whole population. And so, you know, I think people who get into public health maybe sort of, uh, you know, de-emphasize the individual and, you know, emphasize sort of the larger good or the greater good. And 
Um, alongside that, you'll find, you know, people who get into the field, they're not necessarily looking to make a lot of money. You know, that's not something that they value. And um, they're looking to make, you know, the world a better place. It's actually kind of a funny little side story. Um, when I was dating my husband very early in the relationship, I um, he said, you know, I was talking about going back to school for public health. And he said, well, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, I want to make the world a better place. And he spit his water out because he, he was laughing so hard. Um, he thought I was joking, um, but I wasn't joking. He's a stockbroker, so he has very different uh -huh. set of values. So I think maybe our problem in public health is when we communicate, we engage the values that we know. And we're not we're not appealing to people who maybe have different values. And I think we need to learn how to, to talk with them better and to understand their perspective better and to engage their values better because we certainly can. It's just a matter of, of how we frame what we're talking about. Mm, and I think it's also interesting to view it from the other side of the lens as well. Just because um, the thing like you mentioned, saying that you want to make the world a better place, for some people that's such an idealistic thing and especially now that a lot of people are talking about the rights of the individual versus the rights of what's better for society and even if you really want to get into it like whether people should be wearing masks whether people should have access to certain types of healthcare, and it's just um it was interesting to me that it became so polarized especially because from one perspective it affects everyone right but from another perspective, you're ignoring the individual. Well, and then from the perspective that you're making society a better place through public health, you're not. And it's just, it's very interesting. Um, it is interesting. Yeah, I wouldn't say we're ignoring the individual, but we're sort of trying to look at improving the most individuals at once. Yeah. Does that make sense? It's more of the individual is secondary to the greater good of society. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the masks is a great example. Mm. You know, and the other thing too, I think that um, public health could do better at is engaging with the public. So I sort of say like, we need to put the public back in public health. Um, mm. You know, uh, public health tends to be invisible because when things are going well, nobody knows what we're doing behind the scenes. You know, we're keeping the water clean, we're keeping your air clean, you know, we're keeping your food safe to eat. And until there's an outbreak, until people get sick, nobody pays attention to us because everybody is just sort of taking it for granted that these things are happening. And so public health, again, we bemoaned that and we're like, nobody knows what we're doing. We're unsung heroes. But I think that what we need to do is we need to have the public involved every step of the way in public health. So, you know, as we're planning these programs to keep the water clean and keep the air clean and, um, you know, design our communities, we need the public to be have a seat at the table all along from the very beginning, not at the very end after we've designed a new program and then we roll it out to them and say, guess what, we're going to clean up this landfill and here's how we're going to do it. We need to say from the very beginning, you know, what are you guys concerned about in your community? And if they say the landfill, then, you know, let's talk about how we can work on that. But maybe they don't say the landfill. Um, and, you know, public health really needs to do a better job of pulling the public in. I think then they would appreciate us better because they would see behind the scenes and know all the work that's going on. I think another thing actually kind of that I thought about when you were mentioning that. Yeah. 
back to something you said previously about working for the greater good of society. Mm-hmm. It made me think about who even is the public in this case. Because like we mentioned, everyone tends to have different value systems. And people in public health tend to have one general value lean almost. Mm-hmm. Or like a, even if you want to go that far, political lean almost. So it's... um. If you're trying to engage the public, I think it's even more important for people to recognize those different value systems. Because if you reach out to a lot of people and you're like, this is something that we're like, we're trying to actively help your community. And each community has a different system of what they want and what they perceive to be what they need. Mm -hmm. Then that also complicates things. That's especially (laughs) something I think that we saw throughout the pandemic. And part of the reason why a lot of people don't trust public health as much as they did before when it was kind of in the background and they didn't have to deal with it directly. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, because some some groups of people might value individual freedom over the health of the community, um, maybe they don't want to wear a mask and that's their right. and so it's it's never as simple as it seems, you know, like I sort of simplified it when I presented it, but you're absolutely right. It's really complex. And, you know, sometimes in public health, as you're building relationships with communities, you might not be prepared for what they want. Um, and, you know, I have another little anecdote. Um, soon after I got my PhD, I did this training on like community assessment. Um, And I thought, oh, you know, I have my doctorate. I know what these community members are going to be worried about. It's going to be asthma and it's going to be lead poisoning and, you know, it's going to be pollution in their neighborhoods. And these people came in and what they said they were worried about in their environment was graffiti and lighting and safety. And I was like, well, that's not what I learned about when I was in graduate school. And then I realized... But that doesn't matter what I learned about when I was in graduate school. What I think should be their concerns doesn't matter. These are their concerns and they are part of their environment. And that started my journey of thinking about our environment in a much broader sense, in sort of the sense of like a neighborhood and how it's designed and how it interacts with each other, et cetera, et cetera. That makes a lot of sense, especially when you consider that a lot of people come from a lot of different backgrounds. and. For some people, their number one concern might just simply be safety. For others, it's clean water, and like you mentioned. And it's it's almost a very diverse terrain, but even more diverse than actual ecosystems when you get into it. And I think that that's been also an especially important discussion that we've brought to the forefront through the pandemic. So that's been really interesting to explore. But I also think that branching off of this, bringing the public into public health, a lot of it has to do with accessibility. Because like you mentioned, before pre-pandemic, public health was the background. We didn't have to think about it. Rarely anyone knew what they did, including myself. But once it's been brought to the forefront, a lot of people, especially when there's a variety of voices saying what's the best solution or path forward, grow very critical of each of those solutions. They try to research, they try to find what supports each and what doesn't, in addition to their own personal values. And then, branching off of that further, is the problem of data accessibility. The general public has very, very different attitudes towards data. 
and public health seems to love data, which I thought is something we could further discuss. Absolutely. You know, just responding to that last point that you made, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've tried to tell a couple personal stories throughout the podcast. And that is done on purpose because in public health, we tend to talk about data. But research shows that data doesn't really motivate people. Like if you want to win over hearts and minds, you're not going to do it with data. You're going to do it with stories where people, their emotions get tugged and they can picture a face, you know, that's impacted by this. And so if you say, you know, a million people have um, died of COVID, there's not a million faces that pop into your head. But if you show the face of, you know, a couple people that have died of COVID and you tell their stories, then that really does tend to resonate with people. So I think public health needs to talk about data, but we also need to put a face to the data. I also think just one additional thing is that a lot of the data feels very abstract almost. Kind of going off what you mentioned, a lot of people can't picture a million faces. But it's also the question of, where did this news outlet get that number? And why didn't people know that number first? Who's transmitting these numbers and how can we access it in a way that we can evaluate it without being biased by whatever headline is putting it out? Yeah, that's such a good point. And, you know, like even, you know, like I'll be talking to my husband and he'll be like, where did you get that information? And I'll be like, I read it. And he's like, where? And I'm like, I don't remember. So then I'm like furiously Googling it, trying to remember where I saw it, you know? So I have the same thing, you know, even though I'm in public health, I just, I can't remember where I read everything that I read it. I do try to always look at the source of what I'm reading to make sure I think it's a reliable source, but I trust CDC. Not everybody in our country trusts CDC now, you know? And so... I think you're absolutely right to talk about, you know, where do, where does the public get their data and their information? Um, and how do we train people to think critically about what they read, not just to take it at, at face value? Um, and how do we train people to also engage in civil conversations with each other where you can say like, you know, uh, where did you hear that? You know, uh, I'd like to like to learn more or something along those lines because we have to challenge each other if if we're gonna you know get ahead as a society and not sit in our echo chambers where we only talk to people who agree with us or who believe you know what we believe or who follow the same news sources that we follow. I actually think the men the idea of an echo chamber that you mentioned is super interesting, just because since we went online, I've noticed a lot more people have been on social media and social media really amplifies that echo chamber in the sense that um, while previously you might have been surrounded by people who shared your values and your ideals and you kind of engage with one specific set of people, on social media you can really tailor that experience to what your personal values are and then you are in this thought bubble and don't really have as much experience dealing with people whose values are vastly different and communicating with people whose values are vastly different, which I think has really amplified a lot of what we've seen with um, not only public health response, but people's response to what's happened. I think I was thinking about for our like, next few minutes, why don't we talk about solutions to finding, to some of the issues we've just discussed. How do we break out of a thought bubble? How do we communicate better? And how do we improve 
um, basically our own research. Like how do we think critically about how public health is viewed by everyone? And not only public health, but news sources in general. Like how do we make public health seem less I'm trying to think of a word that doesn't make it seem bad. It's hard to talk about things when you have a specific value system. Yeah. It is. And it and I think I think we need to train people in this space. We actually need to train people to be able to talk to people like who maybe don't agree with them or have different values. I think right now people just shut each other down. You know, they th they say like, "Oh, okay, you don't agree with me. I don't want to be your friend at Facebook anymore." Or, you know, I I don't want to, you know, have you over my house anymore. And that's just not going to build our society up, you know? Like if we if we want to come together, I think we need we need to invest in this. Now, I don't know if I have the solution for it. I mean, maybe we go back to like debate club, you know, where you actually train people um to have civil arguments and and um you know, to be able to not take things personally and um, maybe we need to resurrect those at schools or, you know, make every student uh, take it. I don't know. As a member of a debate team, debate can also get very, well, it's generally civil. Some arguments have been very interesting. I think I see where you're coming from. My concern with people sitting down and having civil conversations is also that for a lot of people, these kind of conversations, they might take it as a threat onto their personal being. Mm -hmm. um, for example, like a person's cho choice to wear a mask or not, or mm -hmm. a person's even sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. A lot of these conversations can be so polarizing because they call, not necessarily call into question, but almost overtly threaten a person's identity to mm -hmm. that person's face. And so talking about it becomes a lot harder because in conversation, you're trying to work these things out. You're trying to kind of voice your opinion and genuinely learn more, hopefully in a civil manner. But you have to do it in a way that's like obviously polite. And I think a lot of people are scared to have those conversations because of how polarized they can get. And obviously you don't want to go up to a person and insult them. You don't want to like trash their value system but you also need to understand their value system and you're coming from an entirely different place. Yeah. So it's, sorry, that I, was a mini side rant. <laughs> that's okay, I love it, I think it's great. I, you know, I just saw an article, I wish I could remember where, um, but it was about some colleges that are trying to create spaces for people on opposite ends of the political spectrum um, or on the opposite sides of an issue like abortion or, you know, um, gender identity or whatever, where they can come and like ask questions and express themselves and not be judged. And I remember in the article, it said it was like really being initiated by the students themselves, that they were creating these places where they could have these conversations. And I love that. Like, I love that young folks like yourself are, you know, trying to to allow for people to come together and, and maybe like ask questions that might feel awkward or say things that they're afraid to say out loud but want to say because they maybe want to be challenged a little bit and and um, maybe want to challenge others a little bit. We have at Hopkins um, the uh, Stavros Nierkos Foundation um, uh, the Agora funded the Agora Institute which their goal is to like 
bring people together through civic engagement and informed, inclusive um, dialogue. So I think there's sort of a movement afoot. It might be early stages, but I, I hope we're moving in that direction because united we fall, divided we stand. You know, I feel like, um, no, that's wrong. United we stand, divided we fall. I got it backwards. <laughs> you know, I think our country will be so much stronger if we can, you know, find common ground and uh, learn to live with each other and agree to disagree. And So back to what I said previously in this episode, it might be on second thought way harder to find a solution for these things than I previously thought in my five seconds of thinking after you said something but i think like you mentioned i've also noticed a uh, shift towards open conversation although from my perspective at least from what i've seen that doesn't happen often yeah um, i've noticed it especially on college campuses which through my research i was like looking into and I've, i noticed that it's an interesting place because you're getting so much from not only your own personal research, but from your education at college, and then turning that around and trying to have civil conversation based on what you've just learned. Especially talking about these things in the education system is something that I find really interesting because of how structured it can get. While it's not as structured as a debate club, it does lead to really productive conversations like the ones that surround public health right now. Yeah, and it's really tough, like as a faculty member and an instructor, you have certain things you want to, you you have a certain amount of material that you want your students to learn, but you also want to encourage dialogue and challenges and questions. And so, um, you know, I think just because we teach something a certain way, you know, doesn't always mean that the students need to take it at face value. And I love when students come to office hours and say, you know, this whole climate change thing, I'm not sure about it, you know, I, hasn't the climate been changing ever since the world was created? And, you know, I love to have those kind of conversations. Um, but you're right, I think not a lot of people are open to, to those types of conversations. For some reason, people will feel like personally threatened sometimes. Um, but you're right, at college campuses, I think it is, it's a very interesting way of forming an identity. And that does happen there. I also kind of see where people are coming from and feeling like personally affronted by some things. But at the same time, it's also, it's it's a give and take, honestly. Mm-hmm. How much do you want to feel insulted versus how much do you want to know about the other person's, where they're coming from, so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're almost approaching the end of the episode. So do you have any kind of like final thoughts? Because I know we kind of diverged from public health solely and talked about a lot. But I think it was a really interesting episode. Great. You know, I think one of the final thoughts that I would like to leave the listeners and you with is I have hope. Like, I feel like nowadays, like, sometimes people just feel hopeless. And when I first started, like, working in this field, I worked at the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials. So half of our members were appointed by Republican governors and half were appointed by Democratic governors or Democrats. And I could not use the words climate change. This was 2003 to 2006. Um, And now at that organization, which is called ASTO for short, they have um, a position statement on climate change. And they have people who 
work on climate change as like a really important part of their job. And so I think sometimes, you know, as I get older, I, I have the long view of things because I've lived through things. And I can see that over time we are in making advancements. It might not be as fast as people want. Um, but I do have hope for the future, especially when I get to work with uh, young folks like you um, who are really engaged in this space and really looking to make a difference, not just talk about things, but actually move and act. Thank you for that. That was actually really encouraging. Just a thing for our listeners. If we can, we'll try to link any further sources we have either on our Instagram once this podcast announcement is posted or on our Spotify so you can do your own reading. As we mentioned previously on this podcast and especially in this episode, we're really into providing kind of data accessibility and the ability for y'all to do your own research and to form your own opinions based on what we say and your own personal thoughts. So just putting that out there. And I guess that's a wrap for this episode. Hopefully we learned a bit about environmental justice and the environment. And hopefully you've also had a cup of coffee too. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Environmental Justice Coalition for updates on the podcast and send us a DM about how you like this episode. See you next time for a more deep dive into another environmental topic. And thanks for listening.